Just for this last message, I want to turn us to a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, passage of Scripture that you know inside out, but we're going to think about it again, and that's Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The word has said has many connotations. Remember the diamond we started with, the facets of the diamond. Every time we turned the diamond a little bit, we saw another facet of the word of God. The word has said can mean choosing. We know God loves us because he chose us. He signaled us out to be his own. We know he loves us because he made us and he took such trouble over the making such intricate trouble in making us who we are and how we function, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits. We know he loves us because he rescues us from the giants in our lives. We know he loves us because he comforts us. He is the encourager. He is the Holy Spirit, the one called alongside to help. We know he loves us because he forgives us. And as David experienced all these things he wrote about, has said in his Psalms, nevermore, than in Psalm 51, when God cleansed him and forgave him for his great sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. And we know God loves us because he gifts us. He equips us for the telling of that love in the nations. Back in Nigeria, all over the world, people are telling of the love of God today. Out in Cambodia, in those killing fields that I stood in, There are Christian people living in the slums there, living in the high places and the low places, telling people about the love of God. And that's what we've got to go and do. Never more do we see that tenderness, that incredible love of God for us than in the image of the shepherd. Somebody was asked, which image of God excites you most? And somebody said, well, the light of the world. He said he was the light of the world. Another said, well, I like the image that Jesus gave of being the vine and the fruit, where the fruit of the vine. But by far the most people say, no, the shepherd. I like the image that Jesus gave of the shepherd. And of course, it's in Psalm 23 that David captures it, even though in Psalm 80, verse 1, he says, O shepherd of Israel, shepherd your flock. That thought, of course, was very relevant to David because he was a shepherd. God took him from being a shepherd. He took him from the sheepfolds and he made him a leader. We have to remember that. I don't know where he took you from. I don't know where he took me from. But he took us from where we were and what we were doing and he made us what he wanted us to be. Maybe it's a leader in our home with our children. Maybe it's a leader out there in high places. Maybe it's a leader in government. Maybe it's a leader in the church. But we are leaders if we are Christians. We are leaders if we are Christians because we are supposed to be salt arresting corruption and light in a dark place. And we are supposed to be leading people to Christ. And so we are all leaders. And God took us from where we were and he converted us. He gave us his Holy Spirit and he became our shepherd. In Psalm 23, it is so well known. I'm going to step through it, but we're going to think of other passages of scripture as well. We read that the Lord is our shepherd. And Jesus took that wonderful passage of Scripture. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going into the New Testament. I've so thoroughly enjoyed looking at said in the Old Testament. I'm going to look at agape in the New Testament in the next series. But Jesus talks about being a shepherd. He links the Old Testament. He brings himself out of its pages and walks all over our world in the New Testament and the 
account of that is written in the Gospels. And he said, I am the good shepherd. He talks about this in John chapter 10. He said, everybody that came before me is a thief and a robber. I'm the real shepherd. I'm the real thing. I'm the genuine shepherd. How do you know I'm the good shepherd? I'm the real shepherd because a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then Jesus in John chapter 10 talks about the hireling, the person that's hired. And he says, I'm not a hireling. Nobody hired me. No, God didn't sit in heaven and look around and say, how much money is it going to take to get one of you heavenly beings to go down there and die for that bunch of sheep? He said, I'm not a hireling. Nobody hired me. I came because I wanted to. Why did I want to? Because I love the sheep. The good shepherd loves the sheep. Jesus told us that. And David caught a glimpse of it in Psalm 23. He wasn't hired. He came because he loved us. He came knowing that as the Lamb of God, being made like us, the shepherd becoming a lamb would be crucified and give his blood that we might be forgiven and go to heaven and live in the heavenly sheepfold. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And we could just spend all our time in those five words. The Lord is my shepherd. And yet we're not going to. And right at the end of this series, I want to ask you again, is he your shepherd? Do you know he's your shepherd? Can you say the Lord is my shepherd? Maybe he's Jill's shepherd. Maybe he's everybody else's shepherd. Maybe he's the pastor's shepherd. But is he my shepherd? That's the question that we need to ask. Because you will never know the love of God in experience until you've come into that personal relationship with him. And he is giving you internally the knowledge of that love. In fact, it says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he whispers to our soul, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It is that internal knowledge that only God can, can bring to our hearts. And it only happens when we've come into a relationship with that shepherd who was not the hired hand. David wrote many psalms taken out of himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Psalm 22 that comes right up against Psalm 23 and Psalm 24 that follows are like a trilogy talking about the love of God and the God of love. In Psalm 22, this was the psalm Jesus, the Lamb of God, began on the cross as they began to crucify him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many people believe that as Jesus hung on the cross in his mind, he was helping himself by reciting the 22nd Psalm. And if you read the 22nd Psalm, you can see how relevant it is. David penned it. David was thinking of being persecuted. David was thinking of being surrounded by bulls and dogs and lions tearing at his flesh. But the Holy Spirit took this psalm and invested it with something more than David's sufferings. And it is regarded as a psalm that speaks of the sufferings of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you don't answer by night. Where are you? My God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And the psalm goes on, verse 12, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. David didn't know what he was writing about. But we know now, with hindsight, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among me. They cast lots for my clothing. David the prophet, David the priest, David the king, writing full of the Holy Spirit, writes of Jesus. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. You know, when Jesus talked about being the good shepherd, he said, look, I'm the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. And in the east, a shepherd always lay down across the gate. He was the gate. There wasn't a gate. He was the gate. And a hireling would not be the gate if the lion came. The hireling would get up, said Jesus, and he'd be off because he was doing it for all the wrong motivation. But he said, nobody hired me. And when the lion came, the lion got him. And that's what Psalm 22 is all about. When the lion came, the lion got him. That was Good Friday. But on Easter Sunday morning, he got the lion. He got the lion. And when you read right to the end of Psalm 22, you come to this incredible place in the scriptures All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it! Tetelestai! Finished! Jesus began Psalm 22, My God, my God, where hast thou forsaken me? And he finished it. Tetelestai! Done! And died, sent his spirit home to the Father. David didn't know what he was writing. And he comes from that into Psalm 23. And he says, now this Lord is my shepherd. This Redeemer has become mine. And the way I know he loves me is that he gave his life for me. We have to keep coming back to that over and over and over again. The way we know, the way we are sure that God loves us, even when terrible things happen to us, even when we're hanging on a cross, how do we know? We know because he sent his son to die for us. David had his moments when he was as empty as a drum, but over and over and over he came back to that picture of the shepherd looking for the lost sheep, the shepherd picking up the lost sheep, the shepherd helping the lost sheep be found. And he was able to say, The Lord is my personal shepherd. Therefore, I shall not be wanting anything. That doesn't mean that all our wants will be met. It means that all our needs will be met. Our real needs, not our felt needs. Our real, real needs. What are our real needs? The need of the soul, the need of the spiritual. Those are the real needs. The needs of the relational, emotional, deepest, soul-ish parts of our lives. We have many needs, but the biggest needs are the need and the hunger of God. My heart pants after you, said David, in that Psalm 42. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. And there is a hunger and a thirst that is the deepest need of the human soul, and only the shepherd of love can fill that need.
How's he going to do it? Well, he will make me to lie down in green pastures. And I've often used these pictures. I'll use them again because I come back to them myself over and over again. A sheep never lies down unless its stomach's full. I used to live in the English Lake District among hundreds and hundreds of wretched sheep. <laughs> they were always getting out. They never were satisfied to be where they should be. And that's the human heart. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're never satisfied with what gives us. We always want more. Never, never fall. It's never enough. I remember being brought up with everything I could possibly want. And it was never enough. And there wasn't anything I didn't say I wanted that I couldn't have or wasn't given, that I asked for but wasn't bought. And it was never enough. It can never be enough. The only thing that can fill the human heart so that we can say I shall not want is knowing the shepherd. And I remember the first night that I asked the Holy Spirit to come and fill my heart. It was enough. And I remember lying in that hospital bed saying, now I'm full for the first time in my life. And yet, I was empty of all the other things that I thought should fill me up. My health, my wealth, good's money when you're busy dying. Everything I thought I needed that would fill me up was taken away from me, and yet I was full because the emptiness had been filled by God himself. And when the Lord is our shepherd, the little sheep lies down in the green pastures and wags its little feet and says, Oh, shepherd, <laughs> I am so full, I can't eat one more thing. Now, that's only going to happen when you lie down in the green pastures. How will you know God loves you? By soaking your heart in this. A heart that needs to be loved needs to hang over the Word of God. The Word of God needs to kiss it, put its arms around it, and tell you that it loves you. And as I find, whenever I feel I need to be loved, you run to the green pastures and you begin to munch furiously. <laughs> you know, some of you just zip out of the house every morning and you snatch a blade on the way out. It's not going to do it. You've got to lie down in the green pastures and you've got to munch. Munch your lunch. A bunch. <laughs> and you'll start and get filled up. Because it's only as you take that time. You know, you, you can't do it any other way. It takes time. We have come back to that point over and over again in this series, haven't we? Solitude. What was it made David a giant killer, remember? Solitude. Learning to know God, learning to love God, learning to like being alone. We don't know how to do that very well. We've got to start and learn. Solitude. David said, oh, he leads me beside the still waters. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. Do you know his voice? Do you know his voice? Is it a familiar, loved voice? I remember when Stuart was away all those years, months and months and months as an evangelist. Occasionally, he would send me a tape, and somehow I could listen to those tapes. Many times he would send me letters regularly, those I could read with great joy. But if he ever called me on the phone, I was undone, absolutely undone. And I had to tell him in the end, don't do it. I can't hear your voice because it brings you so near and yet you are so far away and I can't have you 
So don't call me on the phone. I couldn't stand the immediateness of his voice because I loved him so much. Now, when you read the scriptures, is that your experience? Is it almost something that drives you to, I can't stand this. This is so tender. This is so wonderful. This is the voice of my beloved. Is that how we come to the scriptures? Is that how the scriptures come to us? Or have we become old? Is it all old hat? Is it just black words on white print? Or is it the green, green, green nourishment and pastures that it should be? My sheep know my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. And so he leads me beside these still waters. And I often think of the still waters of prayer. He leads me and he forgives me. He restores my soul. We're looking at all the aspects of his said in one psalm. Covenant. The Lord is my shepherd. Forgiveness, rescue, restoration. He restores my soul. My mother, at one point, my father bought a beautiful old English house. It was hundreds of years old. It was called Gate Manor. And my mother began to restore it, and she did a wonderful job of it. She never liked living there. She always felt she was, quote, out of her class, as she put it. In England, you're either high-born or middle-born or low-born, and we were middle-born. And she used to say to my dad, you're not the lord of the manor. You are not high-born. We are middle-born. We have no right living in a castle here. And she never felt comfortable there. However, she did a wonderful job. And she turned that gorgeous, hundreds of years old mansion into a home. And she was very creative, very innovative, and it was beautiful. And she used to pick up all this junk furniture, I used to say, and work on it herself and get other people to work on it until she turned these antiques into works of art. And I remember her carrying a piece of old wood, as far as I could see, through the door. And I said, what is that? And where have you been? She said, oh, I went to this wonderful house, Salem. And this was in their barn. And isn't it beautiful? And I said, no, it's ugly. <laughs> what is it? And she said, wait a bit, wait a bit, until I finished with it. She said, I'm going to restore it to its original image that it lost. And she began to work on it and sandpaper it and acid it and do everything else you do to it. And I remember coming back and seeing that piece of furniture stand in the hall of gate. And I said, Mother, that is a masterpiece. Now that's what God is doing to us. And that's the word. He's restoring the original image that we lost through sin, the image of God. We were stamped with that image, but sin has spoiled it. And we're just like that old piece of wood. But the shepherd loves us so much that he is restoring us. He is making us over. He is changing us. He is making us like him. He restores my soul. How do I know God loves me? Because he never has done with me. His love is unfailing. Yes, we fail. He doesn't. Yes, we give up. He hasn't. Yes, we say, I can't change anymore. I've done all the changing I want to do. He says, I haven't done all the changing I want to do. He keeps after us. He follows us. He is the hound of heaven. He says, I insist you become like me because I love you. I will not let you wallow around in mediocrity and be this wishy-washy Christian. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to work on you because I love you. 
The shepherd leads us in right paths for his namesake. For his namesake. I remember standing outside Jerusalem and watching the sheep come in. I looked one way and there was a shepherd with a whole lot of scraggy sheep. One of them had a tail hanging off and an ear sticking up in the air. and They were thin and mangy, buggy, and the shepherd looked the same. <laughs> and I thought, right, that's it. That, as the shepherd, so the sheep, you know. Then I turned the other way and... And here in the other direction, coming into one of those gates in Jerusalem, was another shepherd and a whole lot of other bunch of sheep. And they were fat and sort of happy and barring and, and fluffy and cute. And so was the shepherd. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, as the shepherd, so the sheep. And, and I judged the sheep by the shepherd. I, I, they were all in together, you know what I mean? For his namesake. You see, if the world looks at us and sees a whole lot of mangy sheep with our ear hanging off and unkempt and buggy, (laughs) they're going to say, who's their shepherd? Who's looking after them? Boy, I'm glad I don't belong to that flock. And the shepherd is judged by the sheep. The shepherd is judged by the sheep. And so it's so important as we think about God loving us that we respond. We love him because he first loved us. What are we to do with all this extravagance of love that God has given us? We are to respond. We are to love him back. We are to let that love do that for us and pull out of us that heart response. And we are to walk in right paths for his name's sake so that we do not dishonor him. You're in a marriage that's difficult, then make the best of a bad marriage for his name's sake. Because marriage is supposed to be a picture of covenant. We don't want to spoil the picture. People say, well, we should stay together because of the children. Mm-hmm. We should stay together because we're Christians, right? But over and above all that, you should stay together because of the Lord and because of his name. Because it brings great dishonor to him when we do not honor the covenant that we've made before God and witnesses at our marriage. So we walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. My shepherd know my voice, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And God will lead us, he will guide us if we are willing to be led and guided. But if we're running out of the place all the time, if we're looking for the hole in the the hedge, if we're saying the grass on the other side of the hedge is, is always greener, then we cannot experience this life-giving love, this, as Jesus calls it, life more abundantly, this obedient life. We have to be willing to be led along the right path. And so that's how David thinks about said: Because the shepherd loves him and gave his life for the sheep, then he is going to follow the shepherd. I love to read hymns about following the shepherd and about the word of God and about the green grass. And one of my favorites is one of Wesley's. And one of the inner verses of that is is written in the back of my Bible. Oh, reveal thy lovely face, quicken all my drooping powers, pants my thirsting soul for grace as a thirsty land for showers. Oh, continue with me, Lord. Stay me, hold me, all from thee I fly. Strength and comfort from thy word imperceptibly supply. Hold me till I apprehend. Keep me faithful to the end. And it's, it's those words 
strength and comfort from your word imperceptibly supply. You know, this morning, it happened again, just this morning. Sort of tired from a week of ministry, I tumble out of bed early this morning to spend time with the Lord. Because I know I should. And because I know I want to come and tell you I did. (laughs) (laughs) How can I preach a message like this and not do it myself? And so here I am, sleepy, and I just begin to read. I just begin to read. I just begin to let that word wash over me. I just lie down and munch and munch and munch and chew on it and think and read a little bit more and get a cup of coffee and lie back in my bed and get another Bible and go up and get another translation. And, and, and I had a feast. And I can't tell you any one specific great big thing. I'm not going to write a book about what I learned this morning. But when I got dressed and when I was getting ready to come, I noticed something, strength and comfort from thy word, imperceptibly supplied, full, nourished, satisfied, ready to go, and go, and go, and go, because it's nourishment that never stops. It's nourishment that never stops. How do I know God loves me? He imperceptibly supplies strength and comfort from his word every time I lie down in these green pastures. So I know he loves me. There's always a meal on the table. Always a meal on the table. He spreads a table in the presence of my enemies, even when we're in the valley. And you might ask, well, what are the sheep doing in the valley? Doesn't the shepherd love them enough to keep them on the high hills. And I think of David and all the things we've thought about him. What were his valleys? The valley of rejection. He wrote a psalm about that, 59. 22, wrote many psalms about rejection. Betrayal, Absalom, his own son. When he was a prisoner with Abimelech, he wrote Psalm 34. Had to pretend he was mad to escape. Terrible experience he had there. When his health went, when war rose up against him, you need to read Psalm 18, 27, 56. As the Philistines came against him, these were valleys in David's life. And of course, the valley of sin in Psalm 51. And what does he say? He says, when I am in the valley, it's never totally dark, even in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, where there's a shadow, there's always light. And David said, it doesn't matter how deep the valley is, doesn't matter how deep the valley is. Where there's a shadow, there's always light. And in the shadow, you can see his shape. His rod and his staff strangely comfort him. And I've often used the illustration of the eastern shepherd that sometimes has to break the little lamb's leg to make the little lamb follow closely and then bind the little lamb around him and hold him close to his heart so that when the legs is healed and he puts the little lamb down, The little lamb never, ever runs away again. I remember uh, an occasion down in the south when I was doing this psalm. I used to live in Psalm 23. It was probably one of the only talks I had for 10 years. And so I had to give it over and over again. But God's grass grows overnight, I always say. And every time I would come back to it, there was another fresh thing to learn from it. And so I was speaking in this auditorium to, I don't know, the city. It was, it was Memphis. No, it wasn't. It was, 
It was down in Mississippi somewhere. And it was soon after I'd come here, and so I was, I was preaching on Psalm 23. And I got to this little picture, and I made great emphasis about how the shepherd broke the little lamb's leg if the little lamb had been naughty and wouldn't do what it was told and was running around getting up to mischief and running into fields that it shouldn't be running into. What I didn't know was that the mayor of the city had been dragged to that meeting by some well-meaning Christians to hear me speak, and he had just broken his leg. (laughs) He was sitting about four rows back, so I couldn't see it all in a cast, and I labored this point quite dramatically, and he began to get very uncomfortable and very angry because he thought I was talking about him. However, eventually I had a nice talk with the man. But God sometimes has to break our legs. (laughs) Not literally, perhaps. But he has to do something in our life that causes a breaking in order that he may nourish us and hold us close to his heart so that when we're healed, we'll never run away again. His rod and his staff may correct us like His rod corrected David after his sin with Bathsheba through some pretty tough things, but they strangely comfort me. You know, I'm listening on the radio coming back from this situation where somebody has just been shot in one of our suburban schools. And there's all sorts of people ringing in. I turn to another radio program, and it is a rap station, and I listen because it's a call-in show. And all these kids and people in hard rock are calling in, talking about violence and lyrics and what we're going to do and does this affect people and young people. I was thinking about this and somebody called in and said, you know, the problem is we're petrified of these teenagers. We're just frightened of them. And it's getting worse. The teachers don't do anything because they might get their head shot off, literally. And the parents are starting to say, I'm scared of my own kids. I I don't know what to do. I met a mother, a nice suburban mother in New Jersey two weeks ago who has three gorgeous kids. One's going to Wheaton, one's going somewhere else, one's in high school, and one is in a gang, has joined a gang, has left home, 17 years of age, Christian home. And you know what she said? We're frightened of him. We lock our doors at night. We know he has guns. We're scared stiff of our own son. And I thought as I listened to all of this, you know, a child never really feels it has value unless it knows its actions have consequences. And the most loving thing we can do for a child is to tell them that. Your actions have consequences. And the consequences are this. If you break the law, then you will be punished. If you break the law of our home, then you will be punished. However frightened we might be. And a child who is allowed to get away with murder will never really feel loved. And there might be a cost now to loving our own children. A cost even to our very own life. In that particular family, there is. And yet, unless we let a child know its actions have consequence and exert biblical discipline, they will never really know that they're loved at all because they'll say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Nobody cares what I do. My mother doesn't care. My father doesn't care. My teachers don't care. The police don't care. Government doesn't care. Nobody cares. 
And what I love about the Word of God is there is so much loving discipline in it for the sheep. And what does that tell us? It tells us the shepherd cares. He has a rod and he has a staff and he's going to use them both. And if we get ourselves in a hole, he's going to put that hook in our little wall and twist it and it doesn't feel very good and he's going to get us out. And he's going to use that rod to poke us when we're going the wrong way, to lean over the hedge and say, you stupid sheep, get yourself back in here. (laughs) Hit our little nose and push our little butt and say, come on, (laughs) back into the right path. Now that's loving. What sort of a shepherd would he be if he said, go on, seeing the lions ahead of us and the wolf is ready around the corner? He wouldn't be a good shepherd at all. And so his rod and his staff strangely comfort me. How do I know I'm loved? Because he gives me rules to obey. Because he tells me what I should do and what I mustn't do and what I must do. Because of all of that. And that strangely comforts me and gets me back on track. And he also helps me as I am among my enemies by giving me a feast by giving me a feast. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Remember David encouraged himself in the Lord. I have this picture of Psalm 23 in my mind. Do you remember we we did that in a lesson? How he got around him this band of men, these mighty men, those in debt, those that were discouraged, those that were in trouble with the law, and they all came to him in the cave of Adullam. And David became a leader over them, and he turned them into a terrorist group that's probably never had the like since. And they were absolutely lethal. He made them mighty, mighty men. If you want to read their prowess in war, and they've been a ragtag, bobtail group of dissidents. And this man shaped them into an army, made them wonderful, wonderful warriors that began to fight the battles of the Lord and became the core of his elite army once God made him king. And when I think of David coming back to his camp one day after a raid and finding his wives and his men's wives all captured and taken away and how his men turned against him, remember? And what does it say in the scriptures? David encouraged himself in the Lord. No one left to encourage him. He knew how to do that. And I have this picture of David sitting down at a table And the Lord said, now you just sit there and seeing the the Lord lay the table and bring the dishes out. And all around David are the glowering faces of his men. And behind those, Saul with his spear ready to kill him and hunt him down. And behind Saul, all the other kings of all the other lands that were fed up of David raiding their sheep and their cattle and were out to get him too. And in the presence of his enemies, he sits down and the Lord says, now let's... Let's eat. Now, I I see another picture here because I'm English. I I think what's happening here is God says, let's have a cup of tea. (laughs) Let's just sit down and have a cup of tea. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He puts a hedge around it and he says, now, all that war stuff can wait. Let's just have a time together. Let me nourish your your soul. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. There's all this wonderful extravagance. Again, I keep coming back to that word. It's a a word that's beating in my head at the moment. 
He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. What's the picture here? Picture is of contentment even in the middle of trial and trouble and stress. You have to choose to sit down and eat. We come back to that over and over again. You know, when you're in trouble, I don't know what else you've got to do. Whether you've got to see to the funeral arrangements, whether you've got to go into crisis mode, Whatever else you do, don't stop feasting. Don't stop eating. You will need to sit down at that table in the presence of your enemies a lot more than when you're on the high hills and everything's right. And so he prepares a table before us. How do we know he loves us? Because he's there ready to anoint our head with oil, give us the power that we didn't know we had to get up and go, to say the right thing, to do the right thing. And even though we walk in dark places, he'll be there for us. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, surely. And in my Bible, I've underlined surely, and I think of Lamentations 3:22. surely. It's that marvelous word, the unfailing has said, the unfailing love of God never fails. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me some of the days of my life. Is that what it says? All of the days of my life. Well, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. (laughs) Not Monday. No, all the days of my life. There will be many Mondays, like Job had many Mondays. But he will follow us all the days of our life. And I've often said that goodness and mercy, and mercy is hesed. That's the word. Goodness and love. Goodness and hesed will follow us all the days of our life, like God's good sheepdogs making sure that we stay in line with the shepherd and we follow him. He will surely follow us all the days of our life. We get a lot of things through the mail, as I'm sure you do, from missions. And one of the things we got was from Bibles for the World. I don't know if you know Rachunga Padaiti. He's been here in our pulpit. He's an incredible man. Let me read a little bit about him. The sound of the word of God that first entered my ear was, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The words were spoken by missionary Watkin Roberts in my village in 1910. The two words, everlasting life, possess me. It was such a contrast to our tribal beliefs. And yet I was fascinated and entranced by the new teaching. Our forebears had handed down a teaching that in order to enter into paradise, we must behead our enemy and celebrate it. They were headhunters. There was always the danger of losing one's head before taking one. But now the knowledge of God's love has said, leading to heaven with everlasting life overwhelmed me. The wonder of this has never left me. So here's a headhunter. Missionary comes into the village. Grandfather is head of the tribe. The father hears and is saved. My grandfather was the tribal chief and a headhunter. He trained his son, my father, to become another headhunter like him. But father was born again and became a joint heir with Jesus Christ through the inner working of the Holy Spirit. In spite of severe opposition from his father, relatives, friends, Chuanga never turned back. He was disowned by his father and never saw him again. 
Without a Bible, without a teacher, without a church, he survived and walked with God. He attended a mission school for one year and learned to read and write in Lushai, the only language in which the gospel had been translated. After my grandfather died, my father returned to his mother, who he led to Christ. Grandmother became his partner in evangelism. Soon the rest of the family was also converted. And Rachunga Padaiti is telling the story. So this was his father who was converted. Now, this man died. And this whole letter is really a tribute to the old man who first heard the gospel. And it is an incredible, incredible testimony. He did not stop telling others about Jesus and his plan of salvation. He traveled more than 100,000 miles on foot as a missionary and personally won 2,500 converts, baptized 1,496, and established 35 churches. He was also consumed by the hope of the second coming of Christ. He wanted to do everything he could to hasten the coming. When God gave me the idea, this is Rachunga, and this was his idea that God gave him, of sending a copy of the New Testament to every telephone subscriber in the world. Good idea. And he's nearly finished it. As a means of letting the world know about Jesus Christ and his love. He listened and said, Ro, God has given you an idea for all of us to go to heaven alive. When you drop the last of the billion Bibles, that's what it's going to take, in the mail, I will listen for the trumpet. It's too late now for him to hear the trumpet with us. He received his trumpet call ahead of us. He told his pastor in March 1992, Jesus will come on July the 14th, 1993, and one hour after July the 14th dawned, he died. And as he died and was ushered into heaven, he shouted, Hallelujah! Amen! Telling us that all that he had preached about Jesus in heaven was true. Headhunter. He is dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. How do we know he loves us? He told us. How do we know he loved us? He came to tell us. How do we know he loved us? Look at the cross. How do we know he loved us? We can receive him and come into relationship with him. And then we can invest and give and spend ourselves until there is nothing left of us to spend in telling others about the love of God. What drives you? What's the motivation of your life? Is it the love of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm, so well-worn, such a friend. Thank you for the nourishment. Thank you that the greenest grass grows in the valleys of life, that it grows overnight, Thank you that imperceptibly you supply strength and comfort from your word. And forgive us for being such stupid sheep, ever wandering away, ever thinking the grass on the other side is greater and greener. Forgive us, Lord. Poke us. Attend to us. Discipline us. Lord, comfort us with your rod.
and your staff because you love us and help us to walk in right paths for your name and your glory's sake. And Lord, however deep the valley, however high the hill, help us to feast. Nourish us, cherish us. And Lord, like Ruchunga Padaiti, give us ideas, for you have gifted us. That's how we know you love us. You gave him an idea that literally is putting a Bible through the door of every telephone subscriber in the world. That's gift, that's imagination, that's creativity, that's Ruchunga Padaiti. But we are we. I pray that you would touch us with incentive and motivation and that the great love that we receive from you we may pour out of our hearts for a lost world, that you may use us to your greater glory. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.